0: You're listening to a podcast from Spencer, Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe. The conference took place at Shakespeare's Globe on the 12th and 13th of June, 2017. This podcast features a recording of panel four, rhyme, line and lyric in poetry and drama. The discussions were Richard Danson Brown from The Open University, Paul Hecht from Purdue University, Julian Lethbridge from Tubigan and Lucy Munro, from King's College London. The facilitator was Eric Langley, from University College London.
1: I'm going to take quite seriously Spencer's uh, moan about uh, certain types of verse that keep the ear too long from his delight. As a facilitator, I'm not going to keep your ear from the delight of my speakers for very long at all. In what follows, I think, it sounds to me like we're going to get rather technical. Our panelists in this, no. ses- in this section, uh, Luther Monroe from King's, Richard Danson Brown from The Open University, Paul Hecht from Purdue, Indiana, and Julian Lethbridge from the University of Tübingen in, Tübingen, Tübingen in Germany, are going to get even closer to the leaves, lines, and rhymes of Spencer's poetry to reveal, I hope, the poetic and performative mechanics, the cogs and wheels, of how Spencer produces his happy rhymes, they're going to consider the technical features of how Spencer goes about to frame his thoughts and fashion his poetic identity. We'll be considering, amongst other topics, um, the function and nature of Shakespeare's rhyme, technical specifics concerning the lengths of his line, his tedious fourteeners, his metrical feet and write down, I suspect, to the syllabic count of his line. You'll hear more about the compositional strategies of Spencer in relation to other Elizabethan poets and the influence of classical prosody on English verse. But we will also hear not just about the compositional strategies and the metrical craft of the poet, but importantly, and in line with the governing preoccupations of today and tomorrow, we will be considering the performance of that verse Uh, distinctions between the aural and oral effects of Spencer's poetry and that of his contemporaries, listening attentively to the rhythms and the cadences and discussing what happens when words on the page become spoken and conversely when Spencer attempts to replicate spoken language in his verse, how his syntax might or might not adapt in order to meet the demands of conveying diction, speech. So without any more ado, Lucy offered me the most pithy summation of what she wanted to do. She said I'm going to talk about why rhyme. So I'm going to pass over to Lucy. Lucy, why rhyme?
2: Okay, so I'm going to answer this question in as long-winded a way as you can do in five minutes. So what I'm interested in is rhyme as something that both connects and distinguishes Spencer's work from his contemporaries who are writing drama and performance kind of things of various sorts, and maybe from broader questions of performance. And I'm interested in, in why you would choose to use rhyme at particular points in the 16th century, but also in decisions about what kind of rhyme to use, and about the relationship um, between rhyme and both the length of the line and stanzaic structure. Um, and um, I think it was Derek mentioned earlier, um, you know Howard needed, there's a model for doing epic um, in blank verse um, and there's also a model from the 1560s of doing drama in blank verse in the shape of Norton and Sackville's Gobbarduk. Um, but for much of the period up to the late 1580s, blank verse isn't really something that, that comes in and I want to really think about Spencer's rhyme um, as something that happens at a point in time or a series of decades when rhyme in drama is in flux and is going through a series of different kinds of shapes. Um, so drama of the 1560s and 70s, uh, Spencer's boyhood and adolescence. Um, and I mentioned earlier um, Spencer's probable exposure to Mulcaster's, um, Lord Mayor's pageants, um, to drama at Cambridge. Um, and there's a real range of different rhyme possibilities um, circulating at this time. So if we look to um, the sort of the Elizabethan moralities of the 1560s and 70s, uh, so things like um, Lewis Wager's uh, No Magdalene, the, tr- the Trial of Treasure, um, George Wapple I don't know how to pronounce him, um, The Tide Tarrier of No Man, you can see a whole range of, of different ways of writing dramatic verse and using rhyme. Um, so Wager uses cross rhymes and couplets. Um, quite consistently across his work. Wapol for the Vice at the start of Tyotarius, No Man, used a combination of very short lines, so something a bit like a skeletonic in terms of line length, but with a much more regular and complex rhyme pattern. Um, and there's a real kind of vitality, a real mixture um, of verse forms being used in place in this period, um, which really makes something like Northern Sackville's Got Duck go- 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 kind of stick out even more. Now, as we move into the 1580s in terms of verse, there's a real kind of divergence, or different kind of practices, which differ also from the 1570s. So someone like John Lilly, um, writing drama primarily in prose, um, his one kind of sustained um, experiment with blank verse, Woman in the Moon, is probably sort of early 1590s. Um, and then you get something like Robert Wilson's plays... Um, the Three Ladies of London, The Use of Fortinas, Poulter's Measures, these kind of long lines.
3: <clears throat>
2: so really the period in which the Fairy Queen, in particular, but other suspense's works are being composed is a point at which there's a huge variation in terms of what you do with rhyme and drama, but also maybe drama is starting to diverge from the kind of mainstream um, of what's going on in Lady Elizabethan first. And I want to just read... Um, one of the texts that tends to get cited in this context, which is the prologue to Marlowe's Tamburlaine, the first part of Tamburlaine, probably first performed around 1587, published in 1590, um, so published in the same year as the first version of Fairy Queen. Um, And it opens. From jigging veins and rhyming motherwits and such conceits as clownage keeps in pay will lead you to the stately tent of war where you shall hear the Scythian Tamburlaine threatening the world with highest sounding terms, and scourging kingdoms with his conquering sword. Um, and this is often read quite teleologically, so there's um, a sense that, thank God, Elizabethan dramatists have come to their senses and they've stopped using long lines, they've stopped using rhymes so heavily, they've kind of seen the light, and, you know, hooray for the ambient pentameter in white verse. <laughs> um, and of course it's not quite that simple, and we might look at the fact that Marlowe himself closely paraphrases um, a verse from the Fairy Queen, um, 1732, in the second part of *Tamburlaine*. And one of the things he does is to take out the rhyme in his paraphrase and to mould it back into blank verse. Um, and we might think of something like Edward Howard rewriting Spencer um, at the end of the 17th century and putting it into correct couplets. You know, that sense that Spencer's verse is kind of malleable in terms of the, the rhyme, that you can keep Spencer without keeping his rhyme, or um, yeah. changing his rhyme. Um, So just a couple of other things. Um, I mentioned connecting these things to broader debates about rhyme and the kind of function of rhyme and the relationship between rhyme and the the long line. Um, And George Putnam um, calls Fortina lines tedious, um, not for the reasons that 20th century critics tend to call them tedious. Um, But because he says, the length of the verse keepeth the ear too long from his delight. Which is to hear the cadence or the tunable accent at the end of the verse. Now, given that fourteen is often thought of as the least lyrical of lines, or certainly where they're written about, it's interesting you have a language of morality, That the problem with the fourteen for them is that you don't get to the rhyme quickly enough. Um, and I want to try and think about this, or I want to raise this question of what does this mean in relation to to Spencer's use of. of rhyme in relation to, to rhyme sorry, line in relation to rhyme so if we think about the arguments written um, in sort of valid measure or fortina um, if we think about the alexandrine at the end of the stanza, so what effect does it have on the rhyme to kind of elongate that final line, particularly when you've got the, the couplets at the end the way the couplet then links to the, the cross rhymes and so that kind of intricate structure which is then disrupted by that elongated moment um, So, just to kind of sum up the sort of question I have, um, I'm just really curious about what Spencer thought he was doing with his rhyme, but also what his dramatist contemporaries would have thought he was doing with his rhyme.
1: Mm. I think this is a good moment, maybe, if we hear the first of our pivot readings. We've, got, we've only got two large pivot readings in this session, so let's hear the first one. This is uh, coming at the end of the argument between mutability and Nature, uh, and then we'll have a brief pause and go immediately on into the opening, uh, the, the only two uh, stanzas, book eight, third, eight of book seven.
4: So having ended, silence long ensued, nay nature to or fro spake for a space but with firm eyes affixed, the ground still viewed. Meanwhile, all creatures looking in her face, expecting the end of this so doubtful case, did hang in long suspense what would ensue to whether side should fall the sovereign place. At length, she looking up with cheerful view, the silence break and gave her doom in speeches view.
5: I well consider all that he has said, And find that all things steadfastness do hate, and change it be. Yet being rightly weighed, they are not changed from their first estate, but by their change their being do dilate. And turning to themselves at length again, do work their own perfection so by fate. Over them change doth not rule and reign, but they reign over change and do their states maintain. Cease, therefore, daughter, further to aspire, and thee content thus to be ruled by me. For thy decay thou seek'st by thy thy desire, but time shall come that all shall change it be, and from thenceforth none no more change shall see. So was the tightness put down and whist, and
4: Jove confirm it in his
5: imperial see
4: then was that whole assembly quite dismissed. And nature's self did vanish with a no man whist. <laughs> As everyone said,
6: it's really, really great to be here. We're having such a lot of fun in all sorts of ways. This, um, what I'm gonna talk about goes back to an argument that I had with Julian Lethbridge in Dublin, uh, about uh, I am My maths is very, very limited, but I can add up to ten, and being mad, married to a mathematician does have certain advantages. So, my suggestion is that Spence counted of syllables off and on when writing The Fairy Queen. In doing this, he was following the writers of the so-called drab age, who contrived to write lines which are metrically regular through the device of a fixed zero pattern but the effects and influences of Spencer's experiment were much more far-reaching. So here are, I'm starting with some examples. Gascoigne's Steel Glass, all people dread the magistrate's decree. Philip Sidney's Arcadia, ye goat-herd gods that love the grassy mountains. Fairy Queen, book six, To Take the Air and hear the freshest song. I love that one, anyway. Marlowe Tamburlaine, for Tamburlaine, the scourge of God must die. (laughs) And finally, Richard III, grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front. As I'm sure you can see in here, what unites these lines is the major pause after the fourth syllable. In the early text, the punctuation is heavily marked with commas which are sometimes omitted in modern editions. All of the lines, with the exception of Sydney's ego to gods, are decasyllabic. Sydney varies the pattern, of course, by having a disyllabic word at the end of the line, mountains, like question in uh, to be or not to be, of course. Um, There are hundreds of examples of this line shape in the Fairy Queen alone, and it's this distinctive mise en page, which I call, rather catchily, the 4-6 line, which I want to talk about, which I want to use to suggest that Spencer counted syllables rather than simply writing in feet. It's tempting to argue, of course, that this way of presenting pentameter lines was a foible of print culture rather than a reflection of performance practices or how Elizabethans experienced verse. So, though folio alone of the early editions has Hamlet saying, here we go, is sickly door with the pale cast of thought, we perhaps don't want to imagine Richard Burbage heeding that comma on the stage of the Globe or even in an indoor theatre. But Elizabethan writers were highly conscious of this caeserial pattern. Gascoigne indeed recommends it as a compositional norm and he says, in a verse of 10, the caesera will be best placed at the end of the first four syllables. The sealed glass is actually a procession of four-six lines with little variation. Uh, for those with a taste for these things, even more extreme is Thomas Churchyard's poem on Wolsey in *The Mirror for Magistrates*, where every single line conforms to this pattern. I'm going—I actually think this is rather a good poem in many ways. When you read it, you think, "Oh my God, he can't have meant that." And. Um, <laughs> (laughs) Matthew Woodcock's brilliant biography of um, Churchyard does make the point that you do get rather tired of this shape. Nevertheless, this is, and what you see here is the subordination of of, of syllables in ordinary English words to the metrical pattern. So here we go. All went to church when service bell did null. All dined and supped and slept at cardinals rather than cardinals charge. And all would wait When Woolsey took his barge. Summoning the shade of C.S. Lewis, David Wilson Okamura describes this as chant-like, moral, drab, industrial. Yet there's nothing intrinsically wrong with a 4-6 line. Arguably, Churchyard's poem is both effective and monotonous metrical writing, which shows what you get by the rigorous subordination of language to metrical pattern. Plus, Nokomura says elsewhere, rightly, all metres are rigid. What the 4-6 line did, I think, was to confirm a consistent base for the decasyllabic or ambit pentameter line. Spencer's innovation, I think, is devastatingly simple. He abandoned the requirement, or the fad, for every line to follow this pattern. So, the tree catalogue in book one, canto one, is full of such lines the vine-prop elm, the poplar never dry, but it also accommodates chancier shapes, like the ewe obedient to the bender's will, no era, or the laurel, mead of mighty conquerors, pause after the third syllable. We find four six lines on every page of the Fairy Queen, we've just heard some from the mutability cantos, but they are part of a forest of metrical patterns, I think, personally, the lack of agreement about what we call this line is troubling. Is this a foot-based accentual metre, as argued by George T. Wright in his brilliant uh, book on Shakespeare's metres, or is it a syllabic line, as argued by Suzanne Woods? In the time I've worked on Spencer, my mind has changed on the question. I used to think that iambic pentameter was the best description of what... uh, Spencer was aiming for, in Jeff Dolvin's words, we heard uh, from him earlier today, the Fairy Queen shows a massive commitment to iambic movement. <coughs> These days I'm not so sure. Fairy Queen is certainly regular and regularises itself on a base on a pattern of ten syllables with twelve syllables for each stanza's closing alexandrine. I'm going to leave you with some examples which serve to prove my point, all of them from uh, Book One, Canto One. None of them, I think, quite work as regular iams. Yet each or iambic pentameter. Yet each of them conform to this a syllabic pattern of ten syllables. So, firstly, a trochaic opening gathered themselves about her body round. This is terminology borrowed from right, Spondaic and pyrrhic iams. So uh, a pyrrhic at the start of a strange man I can you tidings tell. Closing Spondy, I think we heard that, had that earlier. His dwelling is their tethys, his wet bed. And again, a right concept of syllabic ambiguity. Under black stole, hiding her baited hook. And this is a sequence of uh, syll- syllabically ambiguous lines. Captive to fortune and frail worldly fears. Fly to your faith for succour and sure aid. Let me not die in languor and long tears. You don't, of course, have to agree with my scantions. I expect to get beaten up by Julian afterwards. Nevertheless, this single canto shows that the Fairy Queen is far from metrically predictable. Spencer uses the kinds of tricks I've noted to achieve variety while sticking to lines of 10 or 12 syllables for the Alexandrians. In doing so, I reckon he gave Marlowe and Shakespeare templates they could mimic and develop. Thank you.
1: So, just in case Julian's blood is up, uh, to prevent violence we'll have another of our pivot readings during which time we can all, we can all cool ourselves. <laughs>
4: When I bethink me on that speech while here, of mutability and well it weigh, me seems that though she all unworthy were of heaven's rule, yet very sooth to say, in all things else she bears the greatest sway. Which makes me loathe this state of life so tickle, and love of things so vain to cast away, whose flowering pride so fading and so fickle, short time shall soon cut down with his consuming sickle. Then, gin, I think on that which nature said, of that same time when no more change shall be, but steadfast rest of all things firmly stayed upon the pillars of eternity, that is contrary to mutability. For all that moveth doth in change delight, but thenceforth all shall rest eternally with him that is the God of Sabbath height. O thou great Sabbath God, grant me that Sabbath sight.
5: Uh, This is the fairy queen again. (laughs) All in a camis light of purple silk, woven upon with silver, subtly wrought, and quilted upon satin white as milk, trailed with ribbons diversely distraught, like as the workmen had their courses taught, which was short tucked for light motion up to her hand, but when she list, it wrought down to her lowest heel, and thereupon she wore for her defence a mailed hobber And on her legs she painted buskins wore, basted with bends of gold on every side, and mails between and laced close afore, upon her thigh her scimitar was tied, with an embroidered belt of mickle pride. And on her shoulder hung her shield, bedecked upon the boss with stones that shined wide, as the fair moon in her most full aspect, that to the moon it mote be like in each respect. Then, Forth came Artegal, out of his tent. All armed to point, and first the lists did enter. Soon after eat came she, with fell intent, and countenance fierce as having fully bent her, that battle's utmost trial to adventure. The lists were closed fast to bar the rout from rudely pressing to the middle center, which in great heaps them circled all about, waiting. How fortune would resolve that dangerous doubt. Yet still her blows he bore, and her forebore, weaning at last to win advantage new. Yet still her cruelty increased more, though and though power failed, her courage did accrue. Which failing, he gan fiercely her pursue, like as a smith that to his cunning feet The stubborn metal seeketh to subdue. Soon as he feels it mollified with heat, With his great iron sledge doth strongly on it beat. For with his trenchant blade at the next blow, Half of her shield he shared quite away, That half her side itself did naked show, And thenceforth forth unto danger open way. <laughs> Much was she moved with the mighty sway of that sad stroke, that half enraged she grew, and like a greedy bear unto her prey, with her sharp scimitar at him she flew, that glancing down his thigh, the purple blood forth drew.
7: It's a wonderfully combative panel.
8: I want to point to the distinction between spoken language and written language, which of course is not simple. Uh, But some language is written to be spoken, some language is written to be read, some language is written to survive either treatment. Um, Now, uh, first of all, a caveat. Um, As a very old film actor, Laurence Olivier was once asked to run across a square in, in Venice and he couldn't. So they had a stand-in, and Olivier was furious, and he said, "Um, young man, it's not enough to run across the square, you must look as though you are running across the square. (laughs) And my second anecdote, which is getting trespassing on your field, I'm very nervous, and you may know more about it, um, is that many years ago, and I can't find the reference, um, there was a a big issue in one of the London theatres because the playwright had written a play, and the actors were rebelling, saying, we can't speak these lines, no one talks like that. (laughs) <laughs> um, the author, who ought to have known better, uh, went to court and said, look, these are recorded pub conversations, of course people speak like that. So, um, written and spoken language is kind of a fake thing, uh, if you will, uh, if you like, uh, but there is a difference between the two. It involves syntax, diction, rhyme, and meter, and also, very importantly, the length of the periods uh, within sentences. In spoken arrangement, spoken language um, very much adheres to the subject verb, object arrangement, which is said to be um, typical of English. Um, also, preposed adjectives are a minimum in spoken. I've just pointed to one or two uh, things. Uh, the common fault of a bad writer is to put too many adjectives. You know, you can't say bear, it has to be rugged bear. You can't say tree, it has to be green tree, that sort of thing. Um, pronouns are much less carefully arranged in spoken because the voice does the work of clarifying the syntax. In fact, in language which is uh, written to be spoken, as long as it's clear, the syntax need not be fastidious, the grammar, uh, because much syntactical relation will be indicated by the voice, tone of voice dropping for a parenthesis, for instance, picking up again after it. Um, (coughs) Of course, um, uh, spoken language is meant to be taken in in one hearing, whereas written language is meant to be re-approached. Uh, there. It's, it's uh, when I say taking in one hearing, I don't mean in all of its ramifications, but syntactically. The uh, written language is designed to be read in the head. Uh, we have all been bored to tears by some conference person who, instead of reading a paper, reads a published paper or a chapter from a book. It's virtually impossible to read properly, virtually impossible to follow. Um, the syntax is much more complex, and above all, it's highly subordinated. Um, It often cannot be made clear by the voice. Uh, It's meant for repeated reading, um, and I would say, a a slight uh, exaggeration, it's not to be performed outside of the head, that's what I mean by it's not a performative thing. Now um, in spoken uh, language, rhyme and line are only nuisances to be overcome. You can't just ditch them, otherwise you're writing prose, and there is of course the difference between verse and prose not entirely um, contained in rhyme and and, um, line. Um, And you have to be very, very good as a poet to overcome the limitations that rhyme and line place on you um, when you're trying to write spoken language, which is why it took a long time, if indeed that's what they were aiming at, more of that later, for it to happen in English drama, now um the addressee in spoken language is clear the address there is an implied interlocutor or several of them um (coughs) but in spoken language um sorry in written language it is not always nor is it always necessary um for instance uh, the the opening of uh um (coughs) and so i pray the gods requited them and so they will for, now this is to somebody, but, and so they will, for so is one to be when lords and trusted rulers under kings to please the present fancy of the prince, the wrong transpose the course of governance, murders, mischief, or civil sword at length, or mutual treatment. where are you going, and to whom are you addressing yourself? Now this is terribly undramatic, it's terribly unspoken, but we must remember that Gorbalev was an enormously popular Um, theatrical experience, and the character here is no longer speaking in character. You'd be wrong, I would say, to consider those lines as character. They are a sermon addressed not to the interlocutor on the stage, but to the audience, and I imagine that moralising tendency is one reason why. Um, Celia does it as well, or Celia, I don't uh, (coughs) know which way you want to uh, pronounce it. Um, but she, meeting Eunice, she says, And her embracing said, Happy earth, whereon thy innocent feet do ever tread, Most virtuous virgin born of blah 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 blah, um, <clears throat> hast wandered through the world thou long ago, What grace hath thee now hither brought this way? Or do thy feeble feet unweeting hither stray? Eunice turned to answer, No, wait a minute, this is the fairy queen, half of it is written, she continues, Strange thing it isn't error air and night to see here in this place or any other way that turns his steps, so few there be that choose the narrow but all right, all right already, you know? <laughs> and Una, in typical conversational fashion, ignores the extended adjunct run-on <laughs> paragraph and answers, the, and answers the question posed twelve lines previously, Thyself to see, and tired limbs to rest. Now I think we all do this all the time where someone says, oh, and what did you think of that speech? I thought it was just so awful it was so hot in there. Why on earth can't they put some air conditioning in the blaze? I thought it was a good one. Yeah.
9: <laughs>
8: <laughs> so um, I want to say that, um, in fact, the Fairy Queen is um, is both spoken and written language. It's perfect forum for this sort of puzzle. Um, the spoken language must sound natural. The sound, it must appear, must pretend... It's very important when you read a play like Othello. All the densities of the Scottish play, all the tempest, are not really spoken, but they give the impression they look like they're running across the square. Um, must sound natural, but Shakespeare's language, of course, is artificial. He wrote no language at all, after all. Not just the diction, but the syntax, the fillers, the run-ons, the repetitions, those crazy, uh, those crazy rhymes. Um, but where Shakespeare eliminates filler, radically, um, almost catastrophically in the late plays, Spencer uses filler much as we do in speech. You know what I mean? I mean, she went along there and she's, you know, you know. So what I want to say is that Spencer's verse is spoken verse to a large extent. I'm going to reread the mutability for you in a moment. Um, But that it also contains um, elements or or passages, I wouldn't know yet, um, of written language. Lots of spaces that way. And I noticed that Matthew practically gave up on the syntax of Clarion's arming earlier today and flattened it quite deliberately. And I would say that's because that is a written piece, whereas some of the other pieces that we've been listening to are in fact... um, spoken. Okay, so um, here's here's Spencer. Um, I'm just going to give my take and that's it then. Um, so having ended, silence long ensued, no nature to or froze fate for a space, but with firm eyes affixed, the ground still viewed. This is spoken language, you can hear it. It's very easy to indicate the syntax with the voice. Meanwhile, all creatures looking in her face, expecting the end of this so doubtful case, did hang in long suspense what would ensue to whether side should fall the sovereign place. At length, she, looking up with cheerful view, the silence break and gave her doom in speeches few. I well consider all that you've said. Can you translate this as we go? I've thought about everything that you've said, and I find that that uh, and I find all things steadfastness do hate and change it be. Yet, being rightly weighed, they are not changed from their first estate, but by their change, their being do dilate. Now, I'm exaggerating, but you see what I mean, I hope, by spoken language. You can't do that with all of the fairy queen. Much of it's written. What to make of that? I have no idea. <laughs> Thank you. Thank
1: you very much. So I will open up with one question and then I will throw it to the floor. I suspect the floor may be quite active. So I should just restrain nice. myself to one quick question. I was struck by something that uh, David Munner said earlier on about the way that Spencer has to accommodate uh, the demands of lyric form, Uh, and as Lucy, you were just mentioning again there, that sense that the rhyme sometimes comes in and obstructs, or the rhyme can slow things down, or the elongations of the Alexandrians can actually become impediments, and then, just as we've heard there, about the use of filler and kind of stuff that comes in between, and we seem to be thrown into a... I mean, Patricia Parker would obviously talk in these terms in particular about a kind of a text that is drawn to the elongation, a text that is drawn... To the dilatory um, and the kind of, yeah, the pause that obstructs um, and which builds up desire would be Parker's model, Parker's drawing on narrative um, theory like Peter Brooks uh, and I just wondered, yeah, if you could just slightly broaden out what you're saying about the specifics of how there are a ten- there's a tension in Spencer's verse between the, obst- the obstructive and the flow or the uh, restraint and the enormity or uh, uh, that that might be kind of made, manifest in the Uh, specifics.
8: Yeah, Um, in this context, I've I've gone into that somewhat in the introduction to called Spencers' Rhymes, which Richard and I um, had many a warm discussion over. Our argument in (laughs) Dublin, incidentally, was warm only in its friendship. Um, um, In fact, uh, this is one of the great achievements of Spencer, which was picked up by Marlowe, and I reckon Marlowe spotted it in pretty much our own terms. Bearing in mind the carriage which uh, Lucy made, also and someone earlier today made, uh, that they weren't trying to become Shakespeare—that is, a, a, you know, a trajectory that we see ex post facto—I um, think what happens with Spencer is that he overcomes all of this. He inherits a line based on rhyme, and even where the line is not rhymed, you've got the four-six pattern or whatever other pattern you've got, and it comes line and clause more or less identical. Um, and Spencer's great achievement in The Fairy Queen, less so in The Shepherd's Calendar, but I, I'm afraid I'm not really qualified to speak of that, um, is to break away from this. The miracle, looking back at it as, as a historian, um, is that he not only did that uh, with Lion and Ryan, um, <coughs> which involves the movement of the Cicero, the placement of the Cicero is crucial to this, um, uh, but he also did it from within stanzas. Um, so, I'd say that the obstructing zones are, this is put to produced by Spencer. His achievement is to break away from the rigidities imposed by line, rhyme, stanza. So that somebody who didn't want to rhyme could come along and borrow it roughly. That's an old story. So, like, I love all of that, but I also want to sort
2: of
7: make a Make a sound for rigidity in a funny
2: sort of way as well. Mm-hmm. That one of those things, one of the things that the Alexandrine sometimes seems to use is a way of, of kind of bringing things to a temporary halt and then kind of kickstarting again. So the tendency for a lot of bits of direct speech to end at the end of the stanza, to end on the Alexandrine. And the the tendency for um, standards to start with things like as, when, and. You know, there is that odd kind of shuffle, kind of stop-start kind of feel um, to the way that, that Spencer seems to use his, his stanza as well. So the stanza, you know, this is obviously a, 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 not saying anything that's not obvious, but is very much a unit in itself as well as being part of a series yeah. of connex- connections.
6: But uh, Sorry. No, well, I've, Lucy's just touched on one of my obsessions, which is stanza lead words. And um, with Julian's help, I have counted them all. Does anyone have a stab at which is the... I mean, Andrew and Jane can't... Uh, they've already heard me ranting on about this, but anyone would like to guess which is the single uh, most numerous stanza lead word? You
7: mean the first word in a stanza?
6: Yes, yeah. so... as. No, no... But. but Yes, but
7: is top of the box. <laughs> and
6: buttishness... If I'm right, the groom's on censor as he writes. So in other words, book one and is still far out away in front. But by the time you get to books five and six, buts are all over the place. And it's, um, well, once you notice it, it kind of does your head in. Um, uh, so, you know, it seems to me there is something. I mean, there's a Judith Anderson essay about buts, you know, a very interesting essay about butts in the... Uh, proem to book six it's more than just that proem which is obviously an extraordinary piece of writing Uh, and you know I I will publish this at some point Uh, I you know I think it is something for the community to make more of uh, what this actually tells us and the the other thing I wanted to say is we've mentioned lots of fascinating drab uh, writers The big person we've now mentioned is Chaucer. And it seems to me that we've still not got to the bottom of the question of how Spencer heard Chaucer. And you know, why rhyme? Because Chaucer rhymes. And you know, in some senses, uh, Chaucer is every bit as significant as Virgil, Ovid, all the rest of them. And I think as early modernists, we have tended to diminish Chaucer for institutional politics of English department ways. I still think, you know, you, I tried to read myself into how uh, Spencer thought of Chaucer, which is the most extraordinary forerunner. And, 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 you know, I don't know how we do that. I want a TARDIS or something like that to get us back there. That's a very long-winded answer, <laughs> I can't wait
1: for the journal title. <laughs> 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 uh, I wanted
7: to
9: address the last two uh, presentations briefly. Uh, The last first, um, on the question of some of the verses reading like spoken language and some like written language. I did a project uh, last year with a speech pathologist who'd been working on the question of, uh, in modern spoken language, you sometimes have people who have a tendency to speak in more complex structures, more paragraph-like structures, compared to what we would think of as standard speech, which is a pattern that also tends to go along with particular forms of muscle development in the jaw, which suggests that it results from learning to read before you've finished learning to speak properly. That sometimes, because we teach reading so early, you actually become a fluent reader before your jaw has actually grown physically to its full mature speech capacity, which doesn't happen until you're about three, and that you develop an entirely different speech pattern if effectively your fluent language is written English rather than spoken English. Now that's a product of our educational system. Yeah. If you look at both records of spoken and written English from even four decades ago, the patterns are different. And so I think that opens up the question of what can we learn about the balance between text that was spoken text and text that was written text, given the educational practices of this period and the relationship between how one learned to read, which was so different from the ways we learned to read. Uh, that now, so just a, an interesting question. Also, having just come from a Savonarola symposium, I don't know whether I would agree that character drops out when we're in sermon uh, mode. Uh, I think there'd be a lot of character <laughs> well, in, well, I want in to a sermon. sermon. That point. Some
8: characters, um, some characters uh, sermonize as part of their character. Yeah. Um,
9: yeah. Addressing briefly and relatedly, Paul's. Uh, Intentionally provocative in, uh, invitation to address the question of performativity, when he was saying that, I felt a sort of similar need that I've sensed being brought out by it, which I would love to hear people here address. So I, I'm a historian, I, I show a lot of Shakespeare histories to students, and I'm often working with students coming from a wide variety of disciplines, so I'll have political science students and his, history students and classic students and English students in my uh presentation where we're looking at a Shakespeare uh, DVD often because we don't have the luxury of having actors on hand a lot of the time. Uh, And and very frequently I've found that the PhD students coming from the English department, not in the discussion, but after the discussion when we've had dinner and we've relaxed a bit, will then fess up to hating performance and resenting the sort of intrusion of performance as a concern, where they would rather, and I've had multiple students express this, they would rather be allowed to concentrate on the purity of the text. Mm -hmm. And I, I I, I think part of what Paul is getting at is the question of where is that impulse coming from? Is there something else in the way these texts are approached in some English departments as distinct from the way the same exact texts are approached in other kinds of departments that lends to that attitude developing in some students and whether if we consider performativity when approaching other authors in an English department like Spencer, if we include performativity as a factor in the way we think about Spencer, might that be a key to helping prevent that resentment of performance being an issue developing in the students who are looking at Shakespeare since it feels as if Performativity is in all of these texts, whether they were dramatic works or not, but somehow that's not in how they're being taught. So that's my invitation. I totally agree. I think the really
0: exciting work is done in theater. Uh-huh. And I think English departments are slowly getting ossified because the universities are dividing theater departments and literature departments instead of encouraging dialogue. And so I agree. I think Renaissance texts will really bring some of the the life back in performance. And I would just say that the more performers we can have, the better it is. But partly it's an administrative thing of separating theater departments, I don't know if you have experience, from literature departments, and setting it up as a very
1: false kind of division. Uh, There's a question there.
3: I must shift gears, but uh, without saying one one quick thing about this, I think in the early days of performance studies, the question of text versus performance was itself a critical issue, Uh, and I just think that those two things, I mean, have diverged now, and I think that performance studies people actually don't really about that. But I think that there is a question of aestheticization, and I think that there is a trend in some English departments, I will not say all, where poetry is a kind of high aesthetic form, uh, an object, as opposed to kind of a dynamic performance, and, and so there is some tensions there, but I also think we've, at some level, also left behind that, but, but I'm about to shift gears just to sort just of go with the Chaucer point that Richard made, to say that I speak here as a comparatist, that I'm very struck in our discussion today at how strongly English it has been, even though we are dealing with poets who are um, often, uh, in some sense, I won't say bilingual, but multilingual, who uh, read and think and work with different kinds of poetic lines. And so you know, the question of Chaucer, I think, is important and interesting, because Chaucer, in some ways, invents a vernacular thinking about the invention of other vernaculars. I'm thinking here about Chaucer's interest in Boccaccio and Petrarch. uh, And already there, there is a question um, before, you know, Shakespeare and Spencer and others of what does it mean to write a vernacular poetic line? And how is that different from a classical poetic line? How is that different in other emerging European vernaculars? And I think that that is a hugely important Question for Spencer and specifically Richard. In, in your talk, it really made me think. You know, is Spencer thinking about the syllabic line in Italian and French? Because that is a line that is also playing with this question of syllabic versus others. And, You know, there's a lot of work on sort of quantitative meter and the question of classical metrical, you know, uh, forms and how English moves towards iambic pentameter. But I, 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 at least, I mean, and this is just probably ignorance on my part, but I've just not seen uh, a serious consideration of. How does English emerge alongside the question of the Hendakis syllable? And I've been recently working with Petrarch. The question of illusion in words, for instance, which is a huge issue in the Um, You know, it's clear that Spencer read Italian and thought about it really well. And you've seen Petrarch experimenting with this in all sorts of interesting ways. And so, you know, you're talking me we think, well, oh, why don't we think about that? Or similarly, yeah, Spencer and Horace. I mean, yeah. the Alexandrine and the the issue here again about. The stanza as a closed form. I mean, Spencer is working and doing something really interesting with Ariosto's Tabarima. where clearly the addition of eight to ten, uh, the closure of the alexandrine is playing with a narrative form that was that was in the ballad form, that was interested in rhyme in narrative and how that gets closed off and moved forward. I mean, there's a real dialogue there to be had with other European <laughs> vernaculars and with the way someone like Chaucer was already having that dialogue.
6: So. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I used English examples partly because Wilson Nakamura focuses quite heavily, as you know, on the French example. I mean, I think personally he misuses the French example yes. in a certain ways because he uses it to advance the new relationship between form and content, which I'm afraid I just don't yeah. buy. But, you know, he has done a lot of work. On that whole nexus, I agree. There's a lot more to do on the Italian. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think we probably need to revive um, the Portuguese as well. Yes. You know, that yeah. you know, he may well have been able to uh, have cope with Camoys. So, you know, yeah.
8: Um, yeah, I think um, um, I think it's an opinion at the moment, but uh, it's it's quite widespread. Um, that Spencer's um, uh, was most trying. To imitate the sort of spoken fluency of Ariosto, uh, which is witty and pithy and and lighter. And it is a wonderful job because uh, I assume, uh, you know, we attribute to Spencer what's in the poem, uh, I assume that he realized that English was never going to be quite that light of foot. Um, and I think that's, yeah, so in other way, I agree with you entirely. I'd like to come back to this stop-start rhyme and something that you were saying, um, because there's more than one type of stoppage. And we've got actors here who <clears throat> know very well how to stop without stop. Mm-hmm. I once saw Alan Rickman do Jacobit um, and he's uh, a mouse, and of course, he's a master of the pause. right? We've all seen, I hope, uh, Harry Potter. Um, <coughs> and uh, he, he came on, he said, the scene, <laughs> and you could just feel, we were all hanging on this scene and then waiting after she... It mean, wasn't a pause, in a stop in this sense. And I think loads and loads of the, um, um, of the stanza breaks are in fact enjambments, where you've got no punctuation at the end of a line, and you lift your voice up slightly to carry you over to the next line. We were all taught this in speech, right? Um, so I would say that this is yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, if we say stop and mean halt, then we we're, we're simplifying yeah. our more complicated.
1: Yeah. I think there are three questions, we've got about five minutes, so succinct three, three succinct questions. Ping, ping, ping. So
10: I just I wanted to say uh, about drama, um, uh, I think there are many diverse experiences of English departments in drama, and I agree with Jasna that the more we have, the better. It's not something I've experienced ever that I've had English graduate students say that they were uncomfortable with performance. So, I think there's diversity here. We actually bring actors into our classes quite a bit. That's it. I've been thinking about the issue of scale that Joe mentioned earlier, and I feel that one of the things that these actors are doing for us, and that drama does for us, is to force us to slow down. Because when you read The Fairy Queen, in the end, you can't spend the same amount of time on every stanza. So you have your stanzas that you spend a lot of time on, but it's wonderful to hear these parts of the poem, some of which are some of my big stanzas and some of them are not. And I feel that drama allows this space of opening up a kind of time for us. It's a it's a temporal space, it's like the shift and the scene. It just gives us a space for enjoying things about the poem that oftentimes we don't have. So, I feel that it it opens up many other things, but one of the things it does is have us experience the temporality differently, maybe, and understand how the poem has so much that we normally can't see because, literally, we are going to spend a class on, say, two cantos, and you're not going to spend every stanza in those two cantos the way you're doing it. So that's one thing I was thinking about, this issue of scale, that it's a big scale, it's a big amount of time for a small stanza, but that's what you bring. So just a thought on the dra- value of drama in our context. Paul,
1: cool, do, do you want to speak to
7: that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, mean I, I had like all these other things I was going to talk about up until you know, a few minutes before. <laughs> <laughs> um, about the relationship of acting training to poetic performance. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot to think about there. Uh, because I don't think that a lot of the skill set that actors bring to, to reading poetry is, is, is necessary to um, have a performance of it, although it can be really great to, to add. Um, and I think it's very interesting to hear, to hear these actors and, and the there's some subtle differences between them that I think might reflect differences in their, in their backgrounds that would be interesting to get into. Um, I also had a point about um, about Latin, um, in which I have, I suspect that, that, in particular, having an encounter with um, uh, Latin prosody is absolutely crucial for thinking about listening to English verse, but that, I mean that seems like a really pretentious point to make because obviously we're not gonna get everybody to learn Latin. Um, and, and also there's also lots of people who don't know Latin who nonetheless seem to have hooked into the same perception. Um, my final thing to say would be that I feel like that there's a clash between the version of performance that we do in English which is what I was really trying to fuck with just then, you know, because, of course, we never swear. Why not? I don't know. I mean, other people swear when they want to be authentic, um, but not in an English conference. My God, there are so many unsaid performative parameters about this discipline. And, you know, I feel like in a conference about performance and poetry, maybe we should try to draw our attention to some of those things and, like, ask why they're there, what they're doing, you know, how do they... Um, uh, condition our responses to to all manner of things. Yeah. Can I make one final question
0: and sort of wrapping up? I suppose I did want to say in response to Paul that I don't think there can be any doubt actually about the seriousness of purpose or the good faith of any of us in this room in coming to Shakespeare's Globe to try and think about poetry and performance as what Joe Campana called uh, and I wrote it down because I thought it was just lovely shared unevenly over overlapping Terrain, I think he so. said. And I think that this is the point of this day, this is the point of these different kinds of formats, it's the point of the discursive format, and hopefully of the work that we're going to do later on. And it's precisely the problem of the kind of self imposed silos that we often, as scholars, insert ourselves into that we want to constructively address. But I did also want to correct any misapprehensions that might have arisen in relation to that, um, which is about the seriousness, the value, the insight, the intelligence that our actors have brought to today's uh, sort of proceedings. There are things from the very first moment uh, of your very first readings, and even those, the passing comments about how actually Spencer's verse is easy to read. There's an easiness that immediately overturns so many of our expectations and uh, and sort of assumptions as Spencerians. And I wanted to ask us all maybe if we could give a special vote yes. of thanks to Ian. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe.